Uh, remain standing, if you would, and turn to Mark's Gospel, chapter 9. Uh, we are, we'll begin in verse 30 and read all the way through uh, verse 50, through the end of the chapter. Give attention to God's Word this morning. They went on from there, that, that is Jesus and his disciples. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they, will be, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What are you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and he called the twelve and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives a, you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he was thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than, than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. Let's pray. The Heavenly Father... We come to you this morning knowing that your law is perfect, converting the soul, a sure testimony given wisdom to the unlearned and enlightening the eyes. And so we come to you this morning, Lord, humbly asking if you would to open our minds, our affections, and, and even our wills, Lord, to receive your word. We ask uh, for the work of your Holy Spirit in our hearts this day, for it is only you, O oh God. It could work such a mighty work in our lives. It's in your name that we pray these things. Amen. Well, you might have thought as you were listening to our scripture reading for today that Mark is just stringing together a bunch of uh, unrelated thoughts and ideas with really no unifying theme. I mean, look at it, if you would. Verses 33 through 35 is talking about an argument that broke out with the disciples over who's the greatest. And then in verses 36 and 37, Jesus holds a child in his arms. And then in 
verses 38 through 41, there's sort of this unnamed exorcist who's not one of the disciples and they're upset because of what he's doing. And then in verse 42, there's a person being thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around his neck. And then in verses 43 through 48, someone's going uh, through life with, without a hand or a foot or an eye. And, and then uh, verses 49 and 50, it talks about salt and fire. And, and, and then you're looking at verses 30 and 32, where Jesus is talking about going to Jerusalem and dying, and you're thinking, what does this have to do with all that? It just seems like a lot of unconnected ideas. But I want to assure you this morning that these things do belong together. And, and the theme that really holds them all together is the theme of discipleship of what it means to be a disciple, a, a learner, a student of Jesus, a follower of Jesus. The way we would say it today is, what does it mean to be a Christian? Because a Christian means to be Christ-like. It means to be like the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what does that mean? And we're, we're going to, to look at that over the next several weeks. Actually, we're not gonna, I'm not going to be able to preach on all of this today, uh, just, just part of it. But if you look, if you remember uh, earlier in Mark's gospel, in chapter 8, verse 34, Jesus uh, says, he's talking to his disciples and to the crowds, and he says to them, if anyone would come after me, in other words, if anybody would be my, if they would follow me, if they would be my disciples, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. So the, the, a, a disciple, in one sense, is someone who lives a cross-centered life. A life of humility, a life sometimes of suffering, and a life of death. Now, for us, oftentimes that death is the death of ourselves, of our, of our flesh, of our old nature. In Christ's case, it was literal death. And for some Christians today, it is even literal death. But for Christ, it definitely was literal death upon the cross. And that's what we see in verses 30 and 32. Jesus is uh, uh, teaching his disciples and he says to them, the Son of Man, that is, that's another term for Jesus, right? The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed after three days, he will rise again. And so here's Jesus, who is God himself, right? Who, who humbles himself. And the, the first way in which he humbles himself is he just becomes a person. He's still fully God, but he also becomes a human being. And he does so for the purpose of further humiliation, of being born in a lowly estate, uh, having a ministry where he's constantly ridiculed and, and challenged. Uh, he also suffered uh, and was falsely accused, put on trial, with trumped up charges, he was beaten and mocked, and then he was killed upon a cross. But all of this was part of God's plan. Because you see, God is a, is a holy God. He is a righteous, he is a perfect God. And, and because of our sin, we cannot have a relationship with God. Not only can we not have a relationship with God, but we are living in rebellion as humanity against him. And so therefore... Our, our right end, I mean, we deserve this, is to spend eternity in hell apart from God. But God decided in his great wisdom and his great love 
to send his son to come and to suffer and to die to pay the penalty of our sins if we would trust in him. So that we might not only have a relationship with God, but that he might even give us a new nature. The Bible calls it eternal life. This new nature that could live as God originally created us to live, even in the Garden of Eden. And so Jesus uh, explains to us what it means to follow him. And he gives us several lessons of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And in, really, to be a disciple is to live that cross-centered life. So we need to understand what the impact uh, of the cross is upon our lives as followers of Jesus Christ. Because if we don't really understand that, then a couple of things will happen. Number one, we will overestimate ourselves. Okay, we'll overestimate ourselves. We'll think too much of ourselves. We'll be pretty arrogant about ourselves if we don't really grasp that. And that's what we're going to be talking about today in verses 30 through 41. But the second thing that would happen, and this is what we're going to talk about next week, is that we will underestimate our sin. We'll overestimate ourselves or we'll underestimate our sin. And, and that's what we're going to talk about next week in verses 42 through 50. And so let's look at these lessons this morning that Jesus gives about the disciples of Jesus Christ. What, what is true of us if we are a disciple or a follower of Jesus Christ or a Christian? Well, the first thing we see is the disciples of Jesus Christ are servant-hearted. They have a servant's heart. At the heart of being a disciple is to have the heart of a humble servant of Jesus Christ. Now, the context in which Jesus raises up this point is his disciples arguing about who's the greatest. Now, just think about this. Get this picture in your mind. Jesus is walking with his disciples through the region of Galilee, okay, which is the northern part of Israel. And they're making their way to Capernaum, which is on the northern side of the Sea of Galilee, uh, to a house, most likely Peter's house. But they're, they're making their way to that house. And as they are going that journey, Jesus looks at his disciples and he explains to them that he is about to go to Jerusalem where he will be humiliated, he will suffer, and he will die. But he will raise again from the dead. Well, the disciples, you know, rather than hearing what Jesus is saying, you know, they're sort of back here arguing about who's the greatest. Jesus is talking about suffering and dying, and they're talking about, you know, I'm better than you are. They just didn't get it. Well, no wonder Mark says in verse 32, they didn't understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. Now, if, if you've been with us through our study of Mark, you know that this isn't the first time that this has happened. And it won't be the last time that it happens either as well. Back in chapter 8, verse 31, then in this passage, and then in chapter 10, verse 32 through 34, we'll see it again where Jesus uh, says how he will suffer and die. And, and when he does that, what happens is Peter and, uh, or James and John begin to argue about who's you know about who should sit on his right and who should sit on his left hand they just didn't understand and it's interesting that every time that Jesus shares 
about his humiliation and his suffering that his disciples, not only do they not get it, but in each case, the disciples speak of their own ambitions and aspirations for greatness. They talk about their status, their prestige, and, and just what privileges that they can get because they know Jesus Christ. Well, as Christians, we, we read this, and of course, we, we get to see the big picture of what's going on. And we have more revealed to us in the Bible than what the disciples knew. And so, you know, we look at this and we're like, really? You know, we just can't understand how they could not get this. But I do think we have to understand that in Judaism at that time, rank and order was very important. Uh, who gets the seat of honor was a real thing in the Jewish culture. And we could look at Jewish literature and it would uh, prove that to be true. But even what the Bible says, you see that coming out as well. I mean, Jesus in Luke chapter 14, uh, Jesus is talking to people who were uh, getting ready to go to a banquet and they were going to take the seats of honor, you know, because people like to promote themselves. And Jesus says, don't do that. Because as sure as you do that, what's going to happen is somebody's going to come who's more important than you, and then you're going to ask to be sitting at the back of the table rather than in the, the seat of honor. So it's better to sit in the lower place and be exalted to the higher place than for the other to happen. And then in James uh, chapter 2, uh, we see that this idea is still sort of plaguing the early church. And so James writes to the church, and, and he says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And then he goes on and he talks about how a rich man will show up for their worship services. And they'll usher him into the seat of honor. And then the poor man will come into the worship service. And they'll be like, oh, you sit over there or you sit at my feet. And he said, this ought not to be with Christians. Uh, even though it was part of the culture around them. Now, you may look at that and say, well, I'm glad we don't do that. But the question is, do we? Do we? Are we self-promoting? I mean, isn't it common for us to want people to think highly of us? I mean, we may not seek status or rank, like, you know, you want a seat of honor in the worship service, but don't we often seek the respect and approval of other people around us? I mean, I think we see that sort of express that, that, that sense of self-promotion uh, when we find ourselves uh, talking about ourselves. You know, we're, we're, when we talk with other people, we're just sort of, you know, letting them know what's going on in our lives or maybe we're talking about things that interest us and we really don't take the time to ask them about themselves because we're too busy talking about ourselves. Or, or maybe in the things that we say, we're always the hero, right? I mean, how many times do you have a conversation with someone where you share with them all your sin and your, your weakness and your frailties? Don't we usually uh, speak about ourselves in such a way that we are seen as the good guy, that we're sort of promoting ourselves? And, and even our culture that we live in, there's this idea that we need to seek self-love. We need to love ourselves. And sort of the reasoning is something like this. If you cannot love yourself, then you cannot love others. So you have to love yourself first. Now, ladies, I'll give a plug for the ladies' book group. 
the ladies are going to talk about this at their next book group. They're reading a book about that right now. So, ladies, if you haven't picked up that book, I'd encourage you to do so and be part of that discussion. But, you know, that's what the world says. You've got to love yourself. And, and doesn't the world reward such self-promotion and confidence? I mean, not only does our society foster and even promote this, but even champions those who are self-promoting. Um, but think about that. What a burden that is for us. That we have to live uh, as a, a constant cheerleader to try to make ourselves seem more important maybe than what we really are. And Christ says, I have set you free as my disciples from that burden. You don't have to promote yourself. Matter of fact, I have set you free that you might have the heart of a servant. Now, notice in this passage, Jesus is showing his disciples what greatness looks like in the kingdom of God. And I, I want you to understand, it's not that Jesus is forbidding us to be great. He's not. He's not saying don't be great. He's just redefining what greatness is. He's sort of turning it on its head from what the world says. Look at verse 35. And, and he sat down and he called the twelve and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Now, I've read this passage a million times. And, you know, I always just sort of took that phrase, last of all, and servant of all, it's just meaning the same thing. But, but if you think about it, to be last of all is, is really an expression of humility. And, and to be a servant of all is really an expression of ministry towards other people. And, and the truth is that someone could be humble and yet lazy. They could not think very highly of themselves, you know, and be humble in that sense and, and yet be lazy and still self-serving in their life. But uh, likewise, a person could be a person who likes to serve but not very humble. And, and both of those are incomplete. Neither leads or is the greatness that Jesus is talking about here. Here, Jesus says, great people are humble people who serve. The first must be last and serve others. Well, unlike the world where greatness usually comes through promoting ourselves, even at the expense of other people, Jesus shows us the truth of greatness flows from love for one's neighbor. And likewise, greatness in God's economy is really not reserved for people who are gifted or privileged. You know, when we look at uh, people in our world... You know, we think of the great people as people who are incredibly talented, or they have lots of money, or they're very smart, you know. And so there's only certain people that truly reach greatness. But in the kingdom of God, it's available for every believer and the simple task of serving others. There's probably no point... Uh, where Jesus parts more from the world and the wor way the world teaches than this question of greatness. Uh, I'm reminded of the quote by Plato where he says, how can a man be happy when he has to serve someone? And that's oftentimes the attitude of our day. And I'm not saying that people mind serving, but oftentimes we like to serve as long as we want to serve, 
right? And as long as it's in a way that benefits us, maybe. And it may be to show kindness to other people, but it also might be because it makes us feel good or it's a certain cause that we believe in. But Jesus is speaking of someone dedicated to the humble service of others um, because uh, of what Christ has done for them. And, and there's probably no better illustration of this in life than Jesus himself. Look, if you would, keep your, keep your place in Mark's gospel, but flip over to Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. And Paul is talking about Christ's ministry and uh, what he did and what that looks like. And, and we read these words in Philippians chapter 2, verse 8. He said, have this, he's talking to the Christians at Philippi. He said, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, he didn't think that people would be able to grasp that, that he was God. But he emptied himself, Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. In other words, God became a man. He humbled himself to do that. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, a death on a cross was not just a death. It wasn't just someone dying. But it was supposed to be a form of death that was the most humiliating and painful of all deaths. The Roman uh, army had perfected death in, in this sense. And so it was a very excruciating death and a very humiliating death. And so if you look at this, you see that the way of life for Jesus was down, down, down. It was last, last, last. Jesus says in, in Luke twenty two twenty seven, but I am among you as the one who serves. But, but look at where this got Jesus. Look back at Philippians chapter 2, now verses 9 through 11. It talked about Jesus being humbled and suffering and dying. But then it says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, the, the way up is the way down. The last will be first. Now, note, note it that Jesus is not against being first. As a matter of fact, in the end, Jesus is first. I mean, every knee is going to bow down to him one day. Whether we acknowledge who God is and who Christ is while we live upon this earth, one day we will, as we see him in his magnificence and his glory, we will stand before him as our judge. But Jesus tells us it's not wrong to be first, but it's all about how you get there. Jesus tells us it is through humility, through humble service of others. And, and Jesus goes on then in Mark's gospel, if you turn back to Mark chapter 9, verse 36, he, he, he gives us an illustration of what this looks like. And he brings a child into their midst uh, in verse 36 and 37. And he took a child and he put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. 
Now, we've got to be very careful not to misunderstand this statement. I think it's very easy for, for Christians to think that Jesus is saying here, we need to be like this child. We need to be humble. Well, if you think children are humble, you're evidently not a parent, okay? <laughs> because kids are not always so humble, are they not? Uh, if, if you look at Mark chapter 10, verses 14 and 15... Uh, it does tell us that we need to receive the kingdom of God like a child. But Jesus is using this child as an illustration in a different way here in chapter 9. Uh, and to understand what he's getting at, we really need to understand of how people view children in Jesus' day. Children were, were not highly thought of. They were sort of on the lowest rung of the totem pole of society. You know, children didn't produce labor. They didn't contribute to the workforce. And so, along with women, they were sidelined in society. And, and, and in some cases, they were even viewed as a nuisance, the lowly of the lowly. So children were last, you know, in the minds of, of many people in Jesus' day. And, and even in our country, uh, in generations past, children were to be seen but not heard. And adults would go first to a table, like at a, a, a pot providence or something like that, uh, the, the adults would go first and then the children would come last just to, to show the respect of the adults. I, I know that I think our forefathers would sort of uh, think it very strange how we treat our children today, focusing on our children so much and, and even sometimes worshiping our children, so consumed with making sure that our children are happy. They just would be like, really? I don't get that. You know, we, we have very much changed. But, but if we used to view children as ones to be seen but not heard in Jesus' day, children were not even to be seen. And so what, we, what Jesus does is very significant. He takes this child, this lowly child who is last, who is unseen, and he puts him right in the spotlight. And, and he scoops up that child in his arms and he makes the last first, in essence, in this illustration. And so Jesus serves the little child rather than having the child serve him. So this illustration really is a call to us to be like Jesus, to take those that are last. Neil Stewart, he's an ARP pastor who used to be a medical doctor. He tells a story of when he was in medical training and a, a, a top-notch doctor was, was training them. And he asked them, he says, do you know how I measure a medical student? Uh, he says, I do not watch how attentive he or she is on ward rounds to my questions. I'm, I'm not looking to see how smart they are. That is important that a, a doctor be smart, but that's not the ultimate test of, of their character. He said, how I measure their character is by watching them to see how they treat people who can do them no good whatsoever. Okay, in other words, he says, I look at them to see how they treat the lady who's mopping the hallway or the man who's cleaning the toilets. Do, the, do they stop and do they talk to those people who are sort of the unseen people in our culture? Do they open the door for them and treat them with respect? Well, Jesus tells us as his disciples that that this comes through humble service. We cannot claim to serve King Jesus if we are not serving people around us because the king we serve became a servant himself 
He was humiliated. He himself became last so that we could become first. He has set us free from our selfishness. If that's how Jesus operated when he was on earth, brothers and sisters, what would make us think that he is operating differently today through his church? Did you hear that? If Jesus acted as a servant when he was here on earth, and he has given us his Holy Spirit, he is present with us in his church, then what would make us think that he would act any differently through you and I? So disciples are to be servant-hearted. The second, disciples are also to be kingdom-focused. They are to be kingdom-focused. Jesus said in verse 37, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Right? So he's made that statement. It's very clear to his disciples. And, and now we get an example of a disciple in verses 38 through 41 that does not want to receive someone in Jesus' name. Someone is doing ministry in Christ's name, and they don't want to receive them. As a matter of fact, they want to reject him. And, and so Jesus uses this as an example to teach the disciples that he has saved us so that we might be kingdom-focused. Look at verse 38. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. You know... What's so ironic about this story uh, is that earlier the disciples, back in verses 17 and 18, they were trying to cast out a demon and they couldn't do it because they didn't have the faith to do so. And yet here is a man who's doing what? He's casting out a demon. And the disciples didn't like it and they wanted to stop him. Now notice that the disciples said he's not following who? Us. He didn't say he's not following Jesus. He said he's not following us. Here we see the spirit of, of pride in the disciples. We see their arrogance. We see their elitism. He wasn't part of their circle. And therefore, they deduce, you know, if he's not part of us, if he's not part of our group, then he's not part of Jesus. But once again, Jesus uses this opportunity to teach him about what it means to be a disciple. Um, that to be a disciple is to be kingdom focused, not self focused. Jesus says in verse 39 and 40, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able to soon afterwards to speak evil of me, for the one who is not against us is for us. You see, Jesus makes it clear that this man who was ex uh, casting out these demons were actually on Jesus' side. They were actually ministering in Jesus' name. So for the disciples to try to stop him is an act against Jesus himself and the work of his kingdom. The man is doing it for Jesus in Jesus' name, and the disciples are saying, Stop! So, really, who is part of Jesus' inner circle? It doesn't appear to be the disciples. They were acting like they were on the outside, and they were against Jesus and against his name being glorified. Now, you don't have to do extraordinary things like cast out demons in his name. You can, you can do something as simple as giving a, a cup of cold water for someone to drink. It doesn't matter if you're doing something as great as casting out a demon or something as simple as giving a cup of water to a servant of Christ because they're thirsty. Jesus says it commands his attention and it will be rewarded. And so he says, it should not be rebuked by us. 
If a person is for Christ, in other words, if they have genuine faith in Jesus Christ, then they are to be welcomed and embraced just as Jesus would be welcomed and embraced. Now, I want to be careful here and I want to clarify something because we live in a day and a time where we need to be careful. Uh, this does not mean that as long as someone uses the name of Jesus, that we should embrace them and we should accept them. Because Muslims use the name of Jesus. Mormons, Jehovah Witnesses, even liberal Protestants will use the name of Jesus. And, you know, there are some who will say, well, okay, so then we're good. You know, we, we can work with them. But that's not what it means at all. Jesus is speaking of someone who is truly his disciple, who has faith in him, not merely someone who uses Jesus' name for their benefit. Brothers and sisters, there are many false teachers out there. They have no part in Christ. They are not doing his work. And we need to be careful with that. But for those who are doing the work of Christ, those who have faith in him, a disciple of Jesus, when viewing another disciple's work, must not simply focus upon their own ministry or their own part of kingdom work, but they should rejoice in the work that others are doing as well, uh, acknowledging that work and, and praying for them because a disciple is one who is kingdom-focused. Now, I say that, and, and I, I have to admit that unfortunately the history of the Christian church is sadly a history of schism and, and division. Uh, but Jesus wants us to see that his kingdom is larger than what we think. And we have to have that perspective as brothers and sisters in Christ, as Christians. It's more than just about Kirk of the Plains. It's more than just about our denomination, the PCA, or even Christianity in our country. And so therefore, we must rejoice in what other churches do and, and pray for them as well as followers of Jesus Christ. And that's why we do that. If you look at our bulletin, we pray not only for our own church, but we pray for other churches in our denomination and other churches in our community as well because we are part of the same kingdom. And we want to see Christ glorified. You see, Paul tells us that through Jesus' death and resurrection, that he tore down the dividing wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles. Right? Jews were God's people. God had called them to be their people. But over the years, the Jews sort of had gotten this idea that because they were God's people and the Gentiles were not, that God loved them, and they were pretty nasty towards the Gentiles. Well, then God throws them a curve, and he raises up men to come and to preach the good news of the gospel to the Gentiles, and they get saved. And they now are part of the church, and you have Jews and you have Gentiles in the same congregation. Well, that's a problem if you have a bias against the Gentiles. And so Paul writes to the Ephesians, and he says, look... God's torn down this dividing wall between us. We are now one. We are all the people of God. We must rejoice in the work that, that God is doing. Now, as we think about these two points of being servant-hearted and kingdom-focused, uh, these two things really connect together. Okay? They, they really connect together. You see, the disciples were not kingdom-focused 
Because they were not, first of all, servant-hearted. They were not humble enough. The disciples were talking about who was the greatest, and, and then here's someone who comes along who's, who's casting out demons. And, uh, well, if your whole agenda is ambition, and it's about who's the greatest, then when you encounter someone who's doing even greater works than you are, well, then what's your response going to be? Well, they don't belong. And you're going to, to seek to cast them out. You might criticize them. You might slander them. But being a servant of Christ tears down that pride in our hearts and gives us the freedom to serve other people and to love them and to see the work that God is doing in His kingdom across the denominations in, in different churches. Well, let's think about this this morning in terms of how this comes to bear upon our lives this morning. You see, the, the essence of a person who, who gets the cross, who understands the significance of the cross in the life of a believer, is essentially the willingness to say, let me decrease that Christ may increase. Let me decrease, let my ambitions, let my desires, let all the things that, that I want in my life go away that I might do the things that honors the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me become nothing that Jesus might mightily become everything. Now, where's your heart this morning? Well, let me give you a couple litmus tests, just simple things that, that you might consider that might sort of reveal where your heart is this morning. Let's just say you just had a meal with a group of people and you realize that you're out of water. This is my question for you. Do you go get yourself some more water or do you look around the table and see who else needs more water? You see, where's our focus? It's, it's a very simple thing, but it reveals so much. It, it reveals who we think is first and who we think is last. And even as I was thinking about that this morning, I thought, well, I will get other people water, but I usually get up and get my water first, and then I say to everybody else, does anybody else need some water? Do you see that? It's just so easy to put yourself first, and even when you appear to be so generous. Or, here's another litmus test. When you hear of a church in the Andover area who's growing, and who's seeing converts, what's your first thought about that church? Is it a thought of thanksgiving for what God is doing, or is it criticism? Is it envy? Is it jealousy? Are you saying, well, yeah, they're growing just because they're doing this, but they shouldn't be doing that. Are you jealous? If you're like me, this passage probably reveals more about your failures than, than anything else. And so, so what do we do with that? What, what's the answer? As some, maybe we feel very exposed before God. Well, I would suggest to you that we look to Jesus as he's going to Jerusalem. And specifically as he's going to Jerusalem to die on the cross for the very disciples who had a skewed view of greatness. Uh, the disciples who were exclusive of others that showed them up. Jesus died for them. And yet at no point did Jesus abandon them. He never lost patience with them. He went to the cross. He suffered the humiliation and, 
and he suffered and he died for them. And when they, he did that even while they were more interested in self-promotion and self-preservation. And that, brothers and sisters, is where our hope lies this morning. Because maybe you see yourself in the disciples. Maybe you see your self-promotion and, and things, and you, you're just sort of laid bare. Now, your temptation could be like, okay, well, I just need to do better. But our hope is not in our performance as disciples, but it is in Jesus Christ. Right? Let me remind you of the words of Philippians 2. Though he was in the form of God, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. You see, the one who lowered himself so that he might be lifted up. But when Jesus Christ was lifted up, brothers and sisters, he also lifted up those who would place their trust in him as their Lord and Savior. And as they look to him in faith, our hope in being a Christian, a disciple of Jesus, is in Jesus himself. It is to come to him because at the cross is where we find forgiveness for our failures and our sins and the motivation for our calling to be disciples. You know, when you look at the cross, what you're going to see is Jesus humiliated and suffering. But like I said, there is where you'll find help to deny yourself, to deny your agendas, and to put others first and embrace those disciples that are different than you. Because at the cross is where we see the greatest servant of all who died and rose again from the dead, that we might be like him. Amen? Let's take just a moment and let's just bow our heads and just reflect upon the things that are said. And maybe that you want to pray to the Lord this morning and speak to him about these things as well. So let's take a, have a moment of silence today. Our God and Father, we, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for who he is and what he has done for us. Forgive us, O oh God, for our appalling pride. We can only be prideful if we are ignorant of ourselves and, and our sin and, and of you, O oh God. And of course, the answer that we have is the cross. To come and die to ourself, that we might live anew to serve as you have served us. Lord, we pray that you would lead all of us back to the cross this morning. And not just this morning, but this week, each and every day as we get up. That there at the foot of Jesus, we might understand who he is, the Son of God and the Son of Man, and why he died that our sins would be paid for and we would be given a new nature, one that can humbly serve others and see the beauty of your kingdom work on this earth. 
that we might spend our lives serving the one who served us, dying for the one who died for us, and living for the one who gave his life for us. It's in your name that we pray these things. Amen.